Welcome to the next mile. Today's episode. Mark 5 or bust. I'm your host, Puya Dianan. Welcome to the very first episode of The Next Mile. I'm Puya Dianat. For our first guest, we have AJ Piplica. AJ is the founder and CEO of Hermius, which is a company working to connect the globe with the world's fastest aircraft. If you haven't heard about them already, you're going to be hearing about them soon. The work that AJ and his team are doing at Hermius is transforming the world. They are dedicating their entire careers to further aircraft and autonomous technology, only to hand it off to the next generation of forward thinkers and innovators. I'm really excited to share with you some of the technology that's being developed today, similar to what we fantasized about on the Jetsons. Star Wars, and Star Trek. These inventions are more than just a possibility at this point. They're on their way to becoming reality. So, let's get started. AJ, I want you to sort of introduce yourself. Tell us what your background is and how you got into this world and what you're working on right now. So to give you kind of my origin story, if you will, I have been in aerospace engineering for all of my career. I did my bachelor's and master's at Georgia Tech. I didn't really know I wanted to go into what part of aerospace I really wanted to go into when I went to, went to college. I kind of like, I thought planes were cool and I like Star Trek and Star Wars, but I didn't really know what it was about until I got there. And even when I got there, it was pretty difficult. It wasn't until I really started getting into um, internships and co-ops and started working at NASA and some local aerospace companies that I really got a feel for what it was like to be an aerospace engineer. Over my time at, at tech, I also developed interest in, in business, um, you know, in entrepreneurship especially. And that's kind of how you build things in, in business or management is, is through entrepreneurship. And that's come to, I think, really define a lot of who I am professionally, always trying to, to build things both in, in the physical world and you know, products that, that can share and make the, make the world better. Once AJ finished up his college career, he started working at a local company called Spaceworks Enterprises. With this job, he learned all about conceptual design. Essentially, he learned how to take an idea, break it down to the core physics, model it, and then figure out how to make it realistically happen. So within Spaceworks, we had wanted to take a lot of those early stage ideas and turn them into you know, real companies developing real products for real markets. And one of the first of those was Generation Orbit. That was started to develop a small satellite launch vehicle. So basically a rocket that could take satellites that you can kind of hold in your hand to space. Um, nothing like that had existed at the time. And there were a huge number of not just academic labs and colleges and universities, but also commercial companies starting to figure out how they could use small satellites to do big satellite things, like take pictures of the Earth, um, communications, um, all sorts of things like that. 
Yeah, so there was, it was, you know, there were there were never any small launch vehicles. There, there were some a little bit larger that were very, very expensive. But we wanted to take a lot of the technology that had gone into miniaturizing satellites and apply that to rockets and launch vehicles to provide this this service that was really needed. It's a huge market, so that's what we kind of started to do at, at Generation Orbit. But we'd never built anything before, so we kind of laid out a path where we would build a smaller vehicle to kind of get our feet wet, learn our way through. How do you go from concept, which is where we spent all of our time at SpaceWorks, to you know detailed design, production, testing, and operations, everything else that's, that's down later in the value chain. And uh, that's where I kind of cut my teeth in leadership roles. So I became the COO of Generation Orbit in 2013, I think, and then the CEO a couple years later at uh, the end of 2016, beginning of 2017. AJ's experience at SpaceWorks really opened him up to a whole new world of potential around creating rockets the size of a killer whale to a whole new vision, changing the face of transportation along the metric of speed. This is the core vision behind Hermius. Hermius is breaking serious ground in how we view air transportation today and how we will experience it tomorrow. AJ and his team are working on aircrafts that travel at hypersonic speeds. Tell us the difference between what you're talking about with hypersonic versus what the Concorde was, which is supersonic. Sure. So Concorde, about Mach 2. Mm-hmm. What we're working on, Mach 5 transport. So it's about two and a half times faster than Concorde. So quite a bit of a, a different beast when, when you think about it. And on a scale for people to understand, right now it takes about six and a half hours to cross the Atlantic on your average aircraft. With the Concorde, it was about three hours, three hours, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. What would that look like in a Hermes aircraft? Uh, about 80 minutes. 80 minutes? Yep. So JFK to Heathrow in 80 to 90 minutes. It makes the world regional. You know, it, it makes day trips throughout the world a possibility. And I think the initial application where that's really going to take hold is in business travel. Business travel, the reason it happens is because being face-to-face with someone like we are right now is a totally different experience than any kind of digital communication that that we have. Um, You know, the world has been connected digitally for, I don't know, the past 20 years or so. It's really easy to talk to somebody on the other side of the world. But you still can't have that interpersonal communication the way you can in person. So I think increasing the speed at which we travel is going to change the way the world works. This new development in travel is absolutely going to transform the world, especially the world of business travel. Kevin Bocut, a senior technical fellow of Hypersonics, says, there's always an inherent value in speed. Hypersonic travel, however, is not new, exactly. It's actually been around and actively used in technology for a while. Hermius is just working on making it accessible in everyday life. But I think the key differentiator with what we're trying to do now is sustained hypersonic flight. So in the past, there have never really been aircraft that have flown at hypersonic speeds for extended periods of time. So 60 of those 90 minutes are at Mach 5. And that's never really been done before. And uh, there's a lot of work going on right now in different parts of the world, you know, applying this technology to um, really fast weapon systems and, and different things. But I think the, the true long-term application of it is going to be on the commercial side. And that's how you connect with people. What's the time frame you see for this? You know, a boom 
which is in the supersonic space, they're going Mach 2.2. Mm-hmm. I think they have uh, 76 planes on order. And they're saying that in 2023, mm-hmm. they'll be out on the market doing flights with people. Yeah, I think we're probably maybe three to four years behind Boom. Yeah, they've got a, a pretty good head start on us. I think they got started in maybe 2015 or so. So I think we'll be uh, behind them in the marketplace, but I think they're also going to pave the way in a big extent to what's going to enable a lot of what we're going to do. Boom is doing a lot of the groundwork on the regulatory side. Essentially, federal law says that you cannot fly faster than Mach 1 over land in the United States. Boom is sparking the conversation to amend those laws. Ultimately, to shift the language from a blanket statement to a performance-based law. If you, I mean, it comes down to the physics, right, of, of sonic booms uh, and, and noise. So there are tons of noise restrictions about how aircraft operate and how efficient they are, especially when they're near airports. But when you're traveling faster than the speed of sound, the vehicle that you're in is generating a shockwave. And that shockwave is kind of an instantaneous rise in pressure. And when that shockwave propagates and reaches the ground, it uh, makes a big, like, boom, boom sound. And if you've ever been out in California, anywhere near Edwards Air Force Base, and (laughs) you're not used to them, um, I was in a meeting at at NASA once, and I'd never really kind of experienced big sonic booms. And, uh, like, the whole room shook, the door shook, the window shook, and everybody just keeps going on their business. I'm like, are we okay? Is is, is this an earthquake or something? Noise pollution on that level is definitely jarring and can be uncomfortable. It can also have a negative impact on wildlife. But all that's starting to change. Now with Hermes, Boom, Arion, Lockheed Martin, NASA, and more companies in the industry, there are teams working toward innovating ways to make that boom boom quieter. How will you do that on the technical side? A lot of it will come down to uh, shaping the aircraft. So you can do certain things to kind of muffle out the boom signature on the ground from a supersonic aircraft, you know, flying at maybe 60,000 feet or so. You know, those things are, they can be very sensitive to atmospheric conditions and um, a lot of you know, little uncertainties in, in uh, the way the aircraft is operating. It's, you know, attitude relative to the, um, to the flow and everything. So there's a lot of work going on out at NASA right now. Um, I think Lockheed Martin is under contract to build this low-boom supersonic demonstrator, which I think will be an aircraft that they'll utilize to kind of help come up with what those regulations need to be. One of the things that's different about Mach 5, generally for the same kind of number of people, you can have a smaller cabin or same kind of passenger flow because you're going faster so you can carry more people in the same amount of time. So you can have a smaller aircraft. And the size of the boom is way more sensitive to the size of the aircraft because it's it's much more of a it's a stronger function of how much air you displace than it is to the speed itself. So like just because we're going more than twice as fast as boom doesn't necessarily mean that our, our boom will be twice as strong um, because we have a we'll have a smaller aircraft. So uh, we'll see how the math works out, but fingers crossed maybe we'll be able to fly over land without having to change any rules. Even when uh, Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic had a setback with, uh, was it White Knight 1 that crashed? Oh, Spaceship 2. Spaceship 2. That was a huge setback because there's so many eyes on people that are pioneers, Mm -hmm. and it really sort of sets back the industry when it happens, but that's not a fair metric, is it, for how much good these things can do in the world? Regulations are ultimately put in place to keep people and the environment protected from harm. 
It's a common misconception that traveling by air is more dangerous than traveling on ground. But that's just not true. It's actually hundreds of times safer to fly than it is to drive a car. Still, the general public fears experiencing an accident in the air. This means that in order for these innovative companies, like Hermius, to really make a difference, they are held to a higher standard than other types of travel technology companies are. Yeah, you know, reliability is a huge part of aviation, even more so than it is in, in space. You know, much of where I've spent my time is in the commercial space side of things. And you generally get uh, a little bit more leeway on your reliability. So if you look at like launch vehicles, very, very different quote unquote safety record than, than aircraft have. I mean, a lot of that is because you don't have hundreds of millions of people flying on rockets today. If, if we did, they would be a whole lot safer than, right. than they are. But uh, yeah, that's a, that's a big burden that we have to get over um, and demonstrate through you know, the entire development program that you know, we've built a safe aircraft. And the FAA, their job is to ensure that we've, that we've done that and to ensure that there are regulations um, and a certification regime that effectively demonstrate that without putting an overdue burden on, uh, you know, on, on the business that's, that's developing the aircraft. Part of making hypersonic aircraft accessible to the everyday business person includes transforming the user experience. So yeah, as far as the cabin experience goes, you know, we won't have first class cabin in our aircraft. Um, essentially, speed is the value that you get for your business class or first class ticket that you're paying for. So the, the seats will be comfortable. They'll be, that's definitely one thing where I think the Concorde could have done better is a more comfortable cabin for their, their passengers. So probably something at the premium economy level where you can kind of relatively comfortably open a laptop your knees are not in the back of the person in front of you. And definitely more head support for taller people because I can never support my head in an airplane. I have to like slouch down super far. Huh, that's so. great. And if you're on the business jet side, I think the statistic is like over 70% of CEOs are over six feet, one inches. Oh, so, really? I didn't know that. So that's, that's some market research for you. Oh. There you go. <laughs> hey, well, at least I got that going for me. <laughs> it's why I will never be successful. Just the height thing didn't work out. Oh, we'll get you uh, there. Thanks. Yeah. They have shoes for that. I, I, they would have <laughs> to be pretty big. I might be going to platforms. With the cabin sizes being exclusively similar to premium economy cabins, the aircraft can be kept to a relatively small size, which minimizes the sound of the boom outside. There is one additional difference on a Hermius aircraft from the ones we have today. So ideally, we'd like to have an aircraft with no windows. Why? Um, where are you gonna take your Instagram pics? We'll we'll give you a screen. We'll we'll let you. It'll be like a Disney ride. You get a picture at the end. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, it, it's it's so it's kind of funny since I started doing this. Anytime I'm at an airport or on an airplane, I now have a couple questions that I'll ask anybody that I sit next to. It's like, would you ever fly on an aircraft without windows? And I expected to get a lot of like. Oh no! I gotta see where we are. I gotta see when we land. I gotta like see the clouds. And, and yeah, my Instagram really, really needs it. But I was really surprised. People were like, "Sure, yeah, I don't, I don't really mind. It's okay. I don't mind. Just yeah, if you can get me there faster, I don't need windows." Now I know where you're. You guys haven't fully dug in on the design side, but why is something like that an important design decision? Uh, wait. So yeah, windows at uh, the kind of pressure differentials that we'll have in our cabin. So the pressure differential will be higher than, than traditional aircraft that fly lower in the atmosphere. 
so that's more stress on the um, the skin of the aircraft and the pressure vessel. So um, putting windows in only makes that worse. I don't think they'd be quite as thick as the you know the glass the Georgia Aquarium per se, but uh, they'll be pretty pretty thick. They'll have to be made of quartz given the external temperatures that they'll be seeing. Is that so, like a thousand Fahrenheit? How, uh, how around, around there, yeah. Skin okay. temperatures will be you know eight hundred and fifty to a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. So yeah, so the, the aircraft will, will be mostly titanium. But yeah, keeping the windows out of there allows us to save a lot of weight. Weight is obviously a major concern when designing this aircraft. Still, if you're flying up to 90,000 feet in the air, you could see the curvature of Earth from up there. So while Hermius is aiming to avoid having windows available next to each seat in the aircraft, they may consider putting one window up front for people to look through. Among the many, many design considerations going into the development of this aircraft is autonomy. But aviation is is certainly a place where automation has really, really played out. And this is one of the the second questions that I ask people is, would you ever fly on a plane without a pilot? For the most part, maybe 80 or 90% of people, you know, their answer is, well, computers basically fly the planes today anyway. Which, which to a large extent is, is true. Um, but fly it's fly by wire technology. I mean, they're sure, putting autopilots, in waypoints. Yep, and, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, the pilots are basically making decisions about what the aircraft should do, and then you know the computer systems on board the aircraft are implementing those decisions. So the kind of next level of autonomy is: can you develop you know, machine learning algorithms or AI algorithms that can make those decisions on board the aircraft? And that's, uh, I think, something that will be a core piece of, of our business. I don't think it's something that's uh, necessarily a, a must complete or a, um, you know, there's also laws that have to change around that. There are laws that say you must have two pilots on an aircraft that you know crosses oceans. So yeah, we don't want to go after changing laws. We don't need to, but we're definitely going to work with technology really hard. And I think you'll see that in some of the earlier products that we come out with. So we'd be kind of foolish to for the first aircraft that we built to be this you know 20-person jet airliner that, that you know, crosses the, the Atlantic in, in 80 or 90 minutes. Um, so we're going to build a smaller demonstrator, and that one will be autonomous. So we'll be able to test out all of our autonomous decision-making systems as well as all the automation at the lower levels that's working takeoff and landing and things like that. So we'll have a great test bed where we can work out a lot of the kinks. And I think it's in that vehicle where we're going to build the confidence that's necessary to take the next step and deliver a commercial product that people trust and believe in. Awesome. On the planes I'm riding today, there's these big turbo fans outside. Yep. What do you, uh, do you have like seven of them on your plane? How, how does it go so fast? Oh, man. Well, turbo fans uh, or turbojets can get up to about Mach one and a half, maybe two, um, all on military systems, of course. And to get up there, they're usually using their afterburner, which is basically downstream of the main engine. They have a kind of, it's just a, a cylinder with some special fuel injectors where they'll inject extra fuel into the exhaust of the turbojet, um, and that increases its thrust. So um, you can go, you can accelerate faster, you can get through Mach 1 where there's the, the drag really goes up quite a bit, or you can use it to take off uh, if you want to take off really quickly. So um, commercial aircraft don't use those because they use a ton of fuel. So uh, on the commercial side, everything's all about you know, fuel efficiency. Um, but when your value proposition is speed, you can take advantage of you know being a little bit less fuel efficient to provide the you know the service that's needed. So so yeah, you can push turbojets or, or low bypass ratio turbofans up to you know Mach one and a half, maybe two if you're lucky. 
But uh, then the key is, okay, how do you get from there to, to Mach 5? So we've got uh, a little bit of secret sauce in the middle there that uh, I won't get into just yet, but uh, it'll... We'll just bleep out the next five minutes of AJ explaining all that stuff. Sure. <laughs> nice. But uh, once we get up to about uh, Mach 3, 3.5, we'll transition to a ramjet. You just said today's word of the day, brought to you by our sponsors at Beam Imagination, Ramjet. Once again, that's Ramjet, our word of the day. Take it away. Why thanks, Bob, for the word of the day. Head to our blog at beamimagination.com slash Hermius. That's H-E-R-M-E-U-S. There, we have a full transcript of today's episode, and AJ will explain the difference between some of the types of engines that are used in aircraft. And you can check out a really cool graphic that breaks down how a ramjet, turbofan, turboprop, turbofan with afterburner, and scramjet all work. You'll also be able to see a rendering, never before released, of the Hermius One aircraft. Now back to the interview with AJ. For many people, the most daunting part of flying is the takeoff and the landing. With an aircraft going beyond Mach 3 in speed, I had to wonder how this takeoff would feel from a user experience standpoint. How does this feel when you take off? I mean, or is this like the old Ren and Stimpy cartoons where my eyelids are flapping <laughs> back now the whole time or what? No, it won't, be, uh, it won't be too bad. So the passenger experience when you take off will be pretty similar to what you experience now on a commercial subsonic airliner. It'll just last longer. So you're kind of pushed into the back of your seat you know, from the beginning of the runway to you know, maybe 20 or 30 seconds till, you know, after you get off the ground. Uh, so that portion of acceleration will now last, you know, minutes instead of instead of seconds. In that time, you'll not only be accelerating, but you'll be increasing your altitude up to the cruise altitude, which is, you know, a little less than three times the altitude of of a subsonic aircraft. So yeah, on your way up, it won't feel too much different. Just a longer acceleration period, and then once you're in cruise, it's like you're on the ground. And then uh, you'll slow down same way. It'll be the the slowdown will be a little bit more gentle than uh, than the acceleration. Then you'll come back at land and, and enjoy your day trip in another continent. Taking this to the next step, you know, uh, again we're trying to talk to a lot of pioneers, mm-hmm. and there's so many different strata. You know, we've gone from what is a very boring three tier system of planes, trains, automobiles, and my whole premise and a lot of other people that are thinking in this realm is that that's going to fragment and blow up and there's a lot of different ways to get where you're going. Where does what Hermius is working on sit with some of the other innovations that are coming? What sets it apart from a Hyperloop or a supersonic Mm -hmm. aircraft in terms of what it provides passengers? Sure, so uh, speed is the kind of obvious first one and this particular vehicle is going to be used for long distance travel. I don't think it's going to be used for a couple hundred miles. It doesn't make sense. You won't, you won't even get up to speed fast enough. So it'll be applied to crossing oceans for the most part. And I think the, the big things that it enables is very quick turnaround business travel. Ideally, if it, uh, if it grows to be big enough um, and if we make some innovations on the technology side, uh, I think it's possible that, it, that we can bring prices down to the level of um, you know, uh, economy that we have today. 
but that's a long a long ways off and I, I don't think I can point to a, a specific path to get there just yet but we'll work on it but uh, you know you think about let's take uh, consulting practices for example um, that have consultants traveling all over the world some even have consultants living in different places around the world and that can be really really difficult on a family when you're traveling around and you, you have to go to, to Europe that's a three-day trip minimum. So you're usually going to say, okay, well, it's, it takes me you know, a day and a half to get there each side, plus I'm not going to sleep for a day. So I better go for you know, a week or two. You turn that around and your flight is now 90 minutes. I mean, that's, that's a day trip. So, and from a company owner perspective, you're like, great, get back on the ground. I need more billable hours out of you. So <laughs> they, that's why businesses care and why they're a natural starting point, right? Yep, yep, exactly. But uh, I think anytime you see an increase in you know the speed of transportation, which you know frankly we haven't had a lot of those, you have to go really far back to you know to see. I think you know it took us sixty years to go from horse and buggy to aircraft. So you know that's I don't know how fast a horse and buggy went, maybe fifteen miles an hour. Yeah, you uh, lost three people on the way to Typhoid, <laughs> if I remember correctly, on that's, Oregon Trail. That's when you're going west. Yeah, <laughs> that's why you're, you always started being the doctor. <laughs> I, I always shot a lot of squirrels on my Apple IIe oh, playing uh, nice. Oregon Trail, so that, nice. was, that was all I did, I think. What was your favorite river crossing method? You know, I think I the safest was always take the Indian Guide, right? Mm. Uh, uh, we Fording never worked. Fording was terrible. That was never a good call, at least two oxen. Also, I've, I've never heard that word used outside of Oregon Trail. <laughs> <laughs> no. The 180 years of innovation that came after the Oregon Trail era is what's enabled us to become global leaders. It's because we've moved around faster and better, and that ability to move around more efficiently is accessible to everyday people. Of course, with greater accessibility to travel, like cars, that means more traffic and congestion. AJ and I are both Atlantans, so we've dealt with some of the worst traffic in the world. With all of the travel innovations happening in this area, I wanted to ask AJ what he thought about helping transform this city and state into a hub for travel innovation. What would be the best way to spend our time and resources? Yeah, there's certainly been, I think Atlanta's been really forward-looking, uh, and not just in a, in a kind of planning sense, but also in an in action sense, in investing in little projects here and there to test out novel transportation technologies. I don't know if we're quite a, a good test bed for uh, or an early adopter of autonomous vehicles in and of themselves, but perhaps some of the ancillary services that, that come around them. Um, I think pairing autonomous vehicles with smart road technology is uh, a great way to kind of help that adoption curve along the way. Um, you know, we're basically designing autonomous vehicles to drive on roads that we design for humans, which is certainly suboptimal. So looking a little bit even further into the future and um, thinking about what a you know, fully autonomous transportation infrastructure looks like when you know, there aren't humans driving cars. Do you sometimes feel like infrastructure and regulation are the real Rubik's Cube to solve here? That like, the you know, we're going to have planes, we're going to have scooters, we're going to have hypersonic <laughs> aircraft. Is that the biggest challenge of what you have to do to some extent? Yeah, I think so. You know, and, and the reason is just because it's it's so big and, and ubiquitous. You know, we've built airports. Every airport in the world is built around a particular type of aircraft. Um, and we have to make design decisions about the aircraft that we're building 
that fits into that infrastructure. Because if we, let's say we use a different fuel, for example, like you know methane or, or a biofuel, where are you going to get that at every air, airport in the world? You have to go build infrastructure, and that raises the cost of adoption and just raises the barriers to getting the technology in. So anytime you're dealing with something where you could make a much better system by making some even small infrastructure changes, just getting a system into operation first, even if it's suboptimal, is a, a way better path to adoption than necessarily trying to attack the infrastructure problem from the beginning. Because you know changes and improvements in infrastructure will, I think, get pulled along as you know, you're you know when you're out there ahead, uh, flying in super fast aircraft all over the place, it will create new problems that people didn't think of yet, and may have a different image of what that future infrastructure should look like relative to what it is today. So you, know, you also have to be pretty sure about something actually coming into reality to make infrastructure changes, just because they're so widespread. So it's you know, it's I, I don't think I could go to an airport today and say. Hey, can you put in a liquid methane system for my aircraft that you know might fly here one day? No. <laughs> Take a look at Tesla and all the money that they had to put into building the infrastructure to drive adoption of their technology. It's a huge investment, and I think one of the biggest reasons why the other big car makers never got deep into uh, electric vehicles is because they weren't willing to take the risk on the infrastructure, or I guess it's really the risk on themselves, that their cars are sufficiently you know, good or, or adopted that the investment in the infrastructure makes sense. Whereas you know, Tesla said that from the beginning, look, we're going to invest in electric charging infrastructure. We're going to invest in battery manufacturing infrastructure. And that's going to allow them to be successful in the long run. Not, and not just in this market in and of itself, but I think it'll allow them to grow into other markets. So a lot of times it takes... You know, visionary people willing to take the risk and you know put the put up the money at the beginning to make those investments. I think aviation is is a even harder thing to crack. I think there's a few more zeros on the end of uh, of a lot of those price tags in uh, in some cases, especially on the infrastructure side. So we're kind of playing it a little bit safe there, given that uh, I think we're being you know pretty ambitious on a lot of other axes. You know, we don't necessarily want to solve all the problems all at once, but rather in a, in a intelligently thought out incremental path. This next phase in technological development is going to be a big part of my future and hopefully my kids' future. I personally have a lot of hopes and dreams about being able to fly on hypersonic aircraft. And I can only imagine how that's going to change the work that I do and the work that so many others do too. As AJ is the CEO of a hypersonic flight company, I was curious to know what he hopes to see come out of these Hermes projects. What do the next five years look like? Where is this journey heading? The next five years are going to be pretty grueling. We're going to have a lot of money to raise, a lot of technical milestones to hit that, you know, doing things that haven't been done before. Flying the first reusable Mach 5 aircraft. That's something that we have to do in the next five years. Building an autonomous aircraft that has a use within you know, uh, our defense community. That's uh, something that hasn't been done before. And basically getting us to the point where we've built the team, the technology, to take the next step and go develop the airliner. I think that's the, what the next five years look like. At a higher level, though, I think it's really important for us as a species, let's say, to be working on hard engineering problems. We learned so much by pushing ourselves to go to the moon. 
Um, we learned so much by building the first supersonic commercial aircraft. And it takes big swing inspirational projects to you know, ground the next generation, you know, your kids for example. I hope that the things that we do, and not just in the next five years, but you know, through, the, through the rest of the company's history, you know, people can see what can be accomplished by a small group of people dedicated to a vision and executing on it. I think that's, that is kind of inherently where inspiration comes from. And that's what drives us to continue to advance as a species. And I think aviation specifically, when you, you, know, you look at, we went 60 years from horse and buggy to jet aircraft, to, you know, a couple zeros of increase in speed. And since that, over the next 60 years, we've gone backwards. When I came into Georgia Tech, I was always more drawn to the space side of uh, you know, the, the academic curriculum. Um, and I think a lot of that is because there's so much unknown there. Um, we've only scratched the surface, if you will, of you know, what's going on in space. And I think that will continue. But I think in, in hypersonics, we found a piece of aviation that is ripe for driving innovation, new thoughts, and hungry, hungry people to come and attack those problems, find the unknown unknowns, and change the world as we see it. Before we close out today's episode, I always want to do a fact check and clarification on some of the things we've discussed today. Take it away, Nick. So Puya, we learned a lot today, but there's a few facts we need to check or clarify upon during the episode. First of all, you mentioned the White Knight 1 crash. As AJ pointed out, that was not the White Knight 1, which is the two-hold mothership that carried up Virgin Galactic's Spaceship 2. The crash in October of 2014, which killed one pilot, was certainly a catastrophe, but the recent successes of the Galactic team are what most people now remember. In December of 2018, they made it to the edge of space at 51 miles up, and in 2019, they took up their first passenger, Galactic's astronaut trainer, Beth Moses. Number two, you mentioned that 70% of CEOs are over six feet tall, but in fact, it's 58% according to Malcolm Gladwell. In the U.S., about 14.5% of all men are six feet or over. Among CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, that number is 58%. But more interestingly, 3.9% of adult men are six foot two or taller, with only 30% of CEOs being six foot two or taller. Lastly, let's talk Oregon Trail. Hiring the guide is the best route with 90% success rate, followed by taking the ferry, caulking the wagon, and lastly, fording the river. You guys weren't too far off, but much of what tactic you take depends on the height of the water for that specific river crossing. I couldn't have imagined a better first guest for this podcast than AJ Piplica. A big thank you to AJ for coming out and telling us about his journey and about what the next big thing in technology and travel innovation will be.